Welcome to the Unstoppable Podcast, the official podcast of Unstoppable Domains. Join us each week to hear from leading experts in the exciting new fields of blockchain, cryptocurrency, and the decentralized web, where we talk about the future of the internet and what that means for humans like us. Not only will this podcast help you sound super smart around your friends, but you'll also learn how you can become a pioneer in this space and help lead the charge toward a more decentralized web. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Unstoppable Podcast. I'm your host, Diana Chen, and I'm here today with our guest, Sean Chain. He is a partner at Consensus Mesh, uh, which is the investment arm of Consensus. And I'm really excited to talk to him all about uh, investing and about his background in media as well. He used to work at VaynerMedia. Um, so how how does he combine his thinking around branding and media and all of that good stuff with the crypto world? Uh, so welcome, Sean. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. Great. So before we dive into everything that you're doing at Consensus, I would love to know a little bit more about your background. I know you started in the traditional media sector. You started in ad tech, I believe, um, at Razorfish in New York, and then moved your way up to VaynerMedia, and then somehow from there got into crypto. So I'd love to hear about how that transition happened. I actually think my path, maybe not role by role, but my path of in traditional Web2 companies that are built off of the, the major business model at advertising for Web 2.0 is probably going to be the same path that the next you know, 95% or the next million builders kind of follow um, because so many of them are reliant on that old model. And then in contrast, I like to say that uh, I've never had the same job twice, um, which is kind of odd, or the exact same job. I think I've always been interested in how uh, the internet specifically ends up changing our behaviors and just uh, being a part of the rise of social media and influencer marketing and even how brands play a role in our day-to-day lives. That's kind of what led me to crypto and, and wanting to see how tokens and Web3 could actually transform how value is invested, generated, um, shared, and kind of where it might evolve to in the future. Yeah, before Razorfish, which uh, was a part of a parent company called Aquanive that got acquired by Microsoft for about $6 billion. At the time, it was the largest acquisition in New York. And ad tech was really the darling of New York and um, was the only other market that... Um, actually, that's not true. There, there are a few other markets that had the potential of rivaling Silicon Valley. There was Seattle, Boston, um, and uh, yeah, New York and Austin were, were some of the ones that people were talking about. But New York um, genuinely solidified itself when you started to see some interesting companies like, yeah, like Aquanif being financed and then also a lot of ad tech companies uh, really being built here. And then a lot of Silicon Valley companies starting to build out their business development teams out here, their customer success teams out here, and then just the, the city being a magnet from uh, all, all the great institutions and schools out here. For Razorfish went to BBDO, which was... Uh, one of the world's largest uh, creative shops that uh, is kind of like the the origin or the Batman origin story for where shows like Mad Men were created. So uh, 24 sets of executive creative directors and many of them asking, how do I use social? How, how do I actually incorporate this into my product or service? Uh, and it was amazing working with so many creative people that wanted to to do more than uh, than just send, um, yeah, send, send a banner ad or, or a search ad. 
And while at VaynerMedia, I joined the company to work for Gary, uh, Gary V. And Gary himself was starting an agency just that understood social from the onset and understood that audiences and communities were at the center. And so it was the first place to really hire people under the role community manager. So you're being paid full time to interact with the community. And at the time that was novel. People were like, this makes no sense. Why would I pay money for something that's like a cost center? But it, it worked out extremely well because we were the first to buy just like at BBDO and at Razorfish, the first to buy the ads from Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, Snap, Fine, and kind of lead the way with, with how, how do audiences pay nothing but with time in their data uh, and get a free valuable service of uh, free cat photos and hilarious uh, subreddits. Um, and uh, Gary had started a, a, a venture fund there and I joined the team and um, I ended up focusing all my time on frontier tech. So I spent a lot of time in VR, AR, uh, AI, ML, esports, voice, and also subsequently blockchain where Phil and, and Gary yeah, did an investment in Coinbase, which kind of uh, essentially woke my curiosity as to what else could be done uh, in the crypto side. And then after four years there, decided to push all in on crypto uh, after taking a hiatus uh, after having my, my first kid and then uh, joined Consensus about almost four years ago. So it's been, I'm a, I guess what industry folks would call a, a two-cycler. So I've been here for, for a couple of the booms and one of the, the major busts. Yeah, for sure. So, so much to unpack there, but I'm curious, like when you first found out about crypto and blockchain, you said you sort of got interested in it through social tokens. There's no way you just heard about social tokens one day and you're like, oh yeah, this makes total sense. It clicked, like I'm all in for it, right? So like, what was that learning process for you like? And, you know, was there undoubtedly probably FUD along the way and, you know, times when you were like, I don't know if this is going to work out, you know, especially as you experience some of the dips back during the first cycle. Walk me through that journey of like, how did you start to wrap your mind around this? Because a lot of people are going through this journey today, where they're just getting exposed to crypto today. Um, and some of it makes sense. Some of it doesn't make sense. Uh, there's a lot of questions. So love to hear about, you know, how, how that was for you. Yeah, for me, I think when I started to see an analogous comparison to that of Web2 companies that started to use virtual currencies, Growing up, I, I loved real-time strategy games, so I loved things like StarCraft and WarCraft and loved loved to geek out on those networks and those virtual currencies being uh, used to buy and sell skins and items was something that I, always stuck with me. New York Tech uh, also had one of the, the ultimate darlings out here during the, the Web2 social media era of Foursquare. And um, I still use Foursquare's app Swarm to check into places, and it's become my digital diary for now probably 11, 12 years. Uh, and they have tokens associated with their badges, and they're one of the first places to gamify elements of physical world and digital world. I've always felt like Foursquare and Swarm's tokens uh, or coins could be tokens, and how people were meeting in real life based upon uh, a GPS coordinates that was uh, plotted on a map. And then you had things like Snap Map, where you see like very serendipitous meetups at a park and have drinks with friends and then just lead to a dinner. And so when I started to see tokens uh, as something that, that started to allude to not just the speculative aspect of owning a the next Instagram or the next, next Vine, I started to also see, wow, what would it look like for not just uh, the first 1,000 
early believers that invested in, invested into Facebook or Uber or, or Twitter like a Krisaka, but maybe you know the first hundred thousand users of a of a platform that are part of its fair launch, that are part of a token sale, um, and started to be early contributors to a network. Um, similar to how people like Little Nas X um, uh, really started to use viral uh, platforms like TikTok to popularize um, Old Town Road. I mean, things like that, you're just blurring the line between creator and user and developer. I mean, creators on a platform, you saw a very vibrant ecosystem within Tumblr that also started to see things like that. But I started to see them as, as, as being synonymous and I don't. I still don't think a lot of people realize just how similar that they are when you're launching these n-sided networks. And so when we're talking about tokens and people are excited that they're crypto famous on either crypto Twitter or you know they've they've been on uh, on the Defiant or they've been on one of these awesome newsletters like you know the Block or whatever. That's great. But like the audience is literally like this big, right? When in comparison, you know you look at um, regular Web two companies and oftentimes when you launch an app. You as a founder in the Web2 side don't even think that you've made it until you've hit like a million monthly active users, right? Like you, you don't even feel comfortable to approach a VC because the total app store and play store is like, what, 1.5 billion people? So if you can't get a million people, you're not even you're not even close to 1% yet. So those are some of the things that kind of led me to get really excited about switching from Web2 to Web3 and kind of how I see some, some of the, the relationship between the two. Gotcha. Gotcha. That makes a lot of sense. And I'm curious too, I always ask like, what are your sources of truth or what are your go-to places to, for learning more in the space? This can be like people on crypto Twitter. It can be blogs, you know, books, podcasts, like anything. Yeah. Um, I lurk a lot on, on crypto Twitter. Uh, I definitely like to read maybe a hundred X more than I write. I do think that the best places for learning are, um, by using and also within the communities themselves. So discourse boards are fascinating to watch the most invested people in platforms talk about new proposals because doing is, it's not theoretical anymore. It's not just someone randomly posting a, a, um, just a general meme, but it's someone that's taken time and effort to craft a bill or an improvement proposal. And then within discords, it's fascinating to watch polls. Um, same with Telegram, um, what is getting energy? And then um, I learned this a lot from from Gary Vee. It was just like listen, listen like ten times as much as you speak, and from that and having a direct conversation with users and audience members, you'll be able to suss out um, what are the things that actually should be bubbling up to the top, and really check your biases at the door. So, yeah, those those communication platforms are probably my favorite. To contrast myself against my contemporaries in the space, like I really do try to talk to a lot of no-coiners and continue to check people that are experts in their own fields and animators at Disney, uh, people that are heads of product uh, at Spotify or um, Shopify or uh, continue to stay and nurture strong Web2 connections because until they see crypto as a de-risk no-brainer to join the space, uh, I don't think my job is done. I don't think that the job of Consensus Mesh is done either in, in trying to build those bridges to, to bring the next kind of million uh, amazing builders into the space. 
Yeah, for sure. I think that's a really good point. So I want to get in a consensus mesh and talk a little bit more about what that is. So I'm pretty sure almost everybody listening has heard of consensus if they don't know what it is. But uh, for anybody who's unfamiliar, can you just give a quick overview of what is consensus and then tell us the genesis story of how consensus mesh spun out of that? Yeah, sure. So consensus net mesh, I would say, is is one of the key nexus events of crypto. Shout out to my Loki fans out there in the MCU. Uh, I think Joe Lubin, as one of the co-founders of Ethereum, really built a playground for brilliant minds, people that were ex-Goldman and JP Morgan and crypto anarchists that don't have a proper identification or even a bank account to really sit together at the lunch table and have a fight or play a game. And I feel like that's been fascinating to watch. Um, now Mesh is uh, is kind of the a sister company of Consensus Software, but it really is kind of like a flywheel of basically each type of investment program for the type of founder that we're at. And one, one thing that I like to say is that we like to meet founders where they're at. Um, and so we've done incubation where we, we uh, own a larger percentage of the companies, but then we oftentimes offer a runway that's one to 10x longer than a traditional pre-seed investor which is super unconventional, especially when you're talking about market timing, crypto winners, volatility. Very few people have that level of risk appetite. And uh, Consensus Mesh has been one of those people that have, that have weathered that storm. We've also done things like accelerators in collaboration with IPFS and Filecoin. We're on our fifth one, led by Gabriel Anderson, um, 20 companies in that, and trying to build at the intersection of two transformative technologies like decentralized storage as well as a smart contract platform like, like Ethereum. Um, traditional Venture, which will be led by Praneeth and Min, they'll be doing and meeting founders where a lot of them are, are traditionally more familiar with that sort of um, direct investment structure. We've been also seeing folks um, on, on my team like Mike Kriak and also Thomas Rush and um, Federico Sidhu and Rob Solomon deeply partner with founders through our incubator uh, in doing things around token design, um, staking, um, also helping provide sort of uh, um, regulatory guidance uh, around what they should be doing. And so, um, yeah, Mesh is now kind of really these investment programs and kind of sits at the intersection of trying to help all the contributors that have built Ethereum to what it is today um, become even greater. So even though we are Ethereum first, we're not Ethereum only, but we do believe that it ends up being one of the key contributors to where the decentralized web uh, leads us, uh, yeah, in, in the mid and long term. So this is your first time, I believe, at least formally working as an investor at sort of a VC. I don't know if you would call Consensus Mesh a VC, but it's sort of like that. I'm wondering, what was it that made you decide to move from working at a media company at VaynerMedia to basically being an investor and, you know, taking on, you know, sort of like getting involved in many different projects at the same time, like really getting your hands dirty. What was, what made you decide to do that? Actually, right before Consensus, I was more of a generalist VC. So at Vayner, Vayner, I was only on the agency side for about a year and a year and a half. And then Gary had launched a $25 million seed fund with RSC Ventures. So Vayner RSC was the fund that I was a part of before that um, as a principal and so that, as a generalist VC, um, you know, we had been working with founders from all, all sorts of different sectors. And so um, our largest investment from that fund was Snap. 
And, you know, a lot of my customers and clients uh, on the agency side ended up being the first customers of their ad products. So it's very symbiotic of being able to sell um, a very nascent uh, product where there are very few actual incentives or clear analytics or data that, especially for a platform like Snap, but it worked uh, significantly in terms of brand lift and uh, conversion. Um, and so at, at the time at Vayner, you know, Gary and Phil and AJ and the rest of the crew, um, Matt Higgins uh, and Carrie, I think uh, oftentimes we're already at the forefront of sports technology, at the forefront of uh, every hot social deal, directly investing in, into um, multiple different projects. Uh, Gary himself, things like Slack, yeah, th things that really touched our everyday lives. Um, and so I ended up spending most of my time on Frontier Tech primarily because um, we were so strong on, on all the other areas. In going from Frontier Tech into crypto, I think investing with a slant with tokens was the thing that attracted me the most as to how it changed because the role at Consensus now around um, pioneering our investments as uh, DAO, like taking DAO membership seats. And now we're on our fifth DAO membership seat as an investor, but I mean, we're one of 75 members of a lot of these DAOs. So it's not like we're one of two investors, uh, like a, a top tier blue chip, and then you have board meetings with us and no one else. We're taking a more federated approach, an approach that now is now more about working with the community and setting up uh, processes and systems that really help to connect more of these networks together. And so this is an investment of money, but it's also an investment of time and building these systems that can be much more virtuous and um, create flywheels in and of themselves so that they can take advantage even more so of network effects and use smart contracts in crypto as a way to, to do it. So because it's trustless and permissionless and best thing since, uh, since sliced bread. Very cool. So with your investment now, is it sort of a combination of, you know, investing capital up front plus, you know, then maybe taking a DAO seed or something like what Seed Club does? Um, is it like a mix of those different things? And is it just re really dependent on which project you're investing in and what they're looking for and what you're looking to get out of it? It is a mix. I mean, I think Consensus Mesh is, is allocating capital to different subsidiaries through these different programs. But we also are doing direct investments. Um, I would say more and more of my time is being eaten up in, in terms of, I guess I could, I would call it like, um, participatory investing. Um, so what does it look like for us not just to sit in an ivory tower and approve or disapprove various motions, uh, by, by the founding team, uh, or the board itself. Now this is really getting our hands dirty and, and saying, Hey, um, it's not just about preferential shares versus common shares. It's not just about who, who gives the loan first. It's now about being shoulder to shoulder with the men and women that really have taken the most risk at the very beginning and believed in a protocol, believed in a project um, that, that we want to co co-create together. And I do think that we, we ourselves are, are some of the ones that um, might be best suited to do that in the, in the long run. Yeah, 100%. I was going to ask, um, too, like, what when, when you decide at Consensus Mesh, like, which companies to work with, what is the thought process that goes into that? Is Are you investing in a lot of social tokens? I know you've spoken about that a few times. Um, or is it really just, like, any Web3 
crypto native project that you guys believe in? We invest up and down the entire stack. So we've done everything from layer zero around hardware all the way to the DAP layer um, and various L2s through through integrations. Our focus now is really on things that which continue to push the envelope and fill in any sort of gaps that the market absolutely wants. Um, so we have contributors that are building towards a lot of the L2s and contributing to ETH2 itself. And that's just through a hub R&D um, led by Joseph Chow and Robert um, uh, Dros. And, and I think those are other ways that we're investing. But other things that we're interested in now are actually DAO tooling. So DAO to DAO governance, uh, DAO to DAO automation. Um, and then in social tokens, I don't. Uh, we have not actually invested in any social tokens directly ourselves, but uh, more than likely we'll end up getting more exposure to social tokens through perhaps a social token DAO. Through the Lao, we do have exposure to friends with benefits, um, and then also other other sort of social tokens that are more art oriented, like Museo, um, through the Flamingo DAO. Um, yeah, so th- those are some of the initial ones, but we we really do uh, expect to see a dozen uh, or so other projects launch tokens that may have social token elements or two token models, which is also interesting. There are projects that use pure governance tokens. But there may be um, pure social tokens that end up playing a curation role or a role that helps to bring in like-minded members as an affiliate token. Um, I'm really excited about uh, what that looks like for, for a lot of projects. Awesome. And then you also said that one thing that Consensus Mesh does a little differently is you don't just say, you know, here's this money and then we're going to sit at the top and just like check or, you know, approve or disapprove. You actually get your hands dirty and work with these companies. What are the some ways in which you can help the companies? I assume on your end, personally, it's probably a lot of like branding stuff, media, things like that. But yeah, like which aspects do you tend to help companies with? Yeah, I'm most excited about product oftentimes, even though um, I think as a user of many DeFi protocols and a lot of early social media tools, um, I as an end user really do enjoy um, getting my hands on it and and trying it out and then also trying it with various stakeholders, stakeholder hats on. Yeah, product feedback, comms and go-to-market feedback, uh, token model feedback, especially around whether or not it's a sustainable or long-term incentive are some of the, the ways that we like to, to help out with. And then we have other like crypto and consensus affiliates that um, we like to point point towards that are, are amazing and world-class like consensus diligence, which uh, does both smart contract and system-based audits, um, which is something that, you know, a lot of Web2 founders don't always think of uh, from the onset, but that, that's uh, industry standard for a lot of Web3 companies that you publish your code and then also you publish your audits um, because everybody wants to be able to interact with your protocol in a trustless manner. And then uh, also regulatory feedback. So uh, Federico and Christina from our legal team oftentimes are working with dozens and dozens of our founders around how to structure themselves, um, their token model, um, and also thinking about how the company grows over time, uh, and then also how to see and think about um, their value uh, realized um, through acquisitions or even secondary sales. Yeah, our, our legal team is world-class and uh, has been working with founders to really help them navigate those uh, those paths um, from day one in, in a lot of instances. So those are all, all the ways that we kind of have been, been working with teams. 
Um, and then as uh, I would say the last one that I'll highlight is that we end up being uh, users. So uh, Rob, who leads our finance team, um, is a finance uh, guru and geek and has been trying all of the treasury management tools, uh, the, the accounting tools as well. So um, how do we automate uh, each of the forms that we need during tax season? Um, this stuff is exciting if you think about all of the wasted hours that a CEO or a CFO ends up wasting on. Rob and, and team are, are actively working towards using these various treasury solutions and accounting-based solutions so that we can find the playbook and then um, the ones that we see having the, the, the most upside and the least amount of downside risk, um, we like to highlight and um, point our founders towards to, to save them time so that they don't have to start from scratch and go hunting for uh, a new solution. Right, right. And I think anybody who's you know used a, a number of crypto products can probably agree that the UX is still very much lacking in crypto. Have you thought of any ways that projects and protocols can improve their UX and make it more, make it easier for people to actually use so that we can onboard the masses? Because until it's easy to use, you know, like people just aren't going to get on board with it. Absolutely. Um, I mean, I, there's definitely a couple schools of thought. I mean, one of my personal investment theses is, is it's a silly one that I like to call like no blockchain blockchain. And um, there are definitely social elements in social media, uh, like things that we can learn from traditional Web2 social media that um, can bring people into crypto and teach them in a more progressive manner. So instead of trying to teach everybody about seed phrases, uh, signing, uh, what does it mean to be a part of a proof of stake network or a proof of work network, um, I understand all those things are very valuable for people to understand why would you use a blockchain that's slow and inefficient versus just a very beautiful centralized AWS like instance. But I do think that um, more and more people might take some of the pages and playbooks out of folks like Instagram, for example. Their flow, especially when you're talking about uh, when networks were slow and when we only had iPhone 3G, and I believe uh, Mike was, was of the two uh, co-founders, was the one that helped to sequence the uploading of your photo as a cash, in, in cash form while you were writing the description and selecting a lens in the very first few versions of Bourbon and Instagram. Now, you had Hipstamatic, you had um, a variety of other camera companies out there that were also just as interesting and dominant but that simple design choice of sequencing something like caching your photo simultaneously while writing and picking your lens made them feel zippy and won them the war. And I think in the same way, when we're talking about uh, Web3 dApps and also wallets, that people are getting to the point where they realize like, wow, how do I progressively educate my audience so that I make it impossibly hard to create something ugly or something that harms myself or something that just doesn't work. And I think the best examples of that are our wallets like Liquality and Dharma and, um, and, and ones whereby in Argent, ones whereby which they almost make it difficult uh, for you to not um, do something that's, wow, that's so cool. I'm so glad that I had that functionality built right within. Um, single sign-on, you know, that's also kind of like the Octa for Web3 wallets. Like there have been a number of awesome players in the past, like 
Portis and Magic and, and a variety of folks that continue to, to help lead the way there. But, you know, um, projects like Wallet Connect, um, I think, are amazing because they've been helping to standardize interconnectivity between the wallets for years now, before anyone noticed, before anyone paid attention. And it's more done out of a public good than, than actually um, getting all the value accrued to uh, um, Pedro and his team. Um, and so, yeah, sequencing is definitely one big theme that I would say UX and UI developers um, and developers are, are seeing as, as one key differentiator. Um, and then progressive education is the other one that I would bucket the examples that I just mentioned. So shout out to things like Rabbit Hole and, um, and, and obviously even the DAOs themselves are creating documentation around how do you entertain and educate simultaneously. Um, but not try to teach everybody about everything from the beginning because that clearly doesn't work. And we've had a lot of failed projects that tried to make it very philosophical, make it much more about these ideals than, than it was just about creating um, simple, sticky feedback loops. Uh, like uh, in Web2 land, right? Product Hunt, Ryan Hoover, um, and uh, the, the, uh, all of the habit-related books Web two has this in spades. Like we, like this isn't stuff that we need to reinvent. Web two folks that are world class product folks have figured out. Hmm, what do I prioritize, and how? Do, what emotions do I invoke in a user when they first touch my product? Like world class product people are thinking that way, and oftentimes I think in Web three, uh, a lot of the builders are thinking about how novel can I make it a flash loan that combines five other pieces of functionality and then fractionalizes the NFT and then uses it as collateral. Like you've already lost like 99% of people like start with a question that's provocative, start with something that they couldn't do before. And I think you'll, you'll get people um, more and more people interested because they'll come back doing something that they couldn't do before. Um, like a single click sign on um, through a web through wallet, which, uh, which sounds super simple, but it, it is absolutely, absolutely going to disrupt um, the, the, the sign-in space and the amount of uh, data that users and apps are able to co collect from the onset. Yeah, for sure. I'm curious to hear your perspective on how things are going to change as we shift from Web 2 to Web 3. And I've got some sp specific questions for you as well. But I guess to start, uh, I'd love to hear your overarching thoughts, like riffing off of your last point of think about like what users couldn't do before and use that as sort of your provocative hook. And so what are some things that users or people, any anyone, companies, people, anybody couldn't do in Web 2 that they will be able to do in Web 3 that you're, you're really excited about? One of the ones that I, I think that makes the most sense is have uh, exposure to the economic upside of a company from day one. That isn't just the investor and isn't just the founding team. That's something that you could never do before. So if you're talking about you know looking up on a, on a highly active uh, smart contract on Etherscan and you see a thousand, ten thousand, if, uh, if you discovered an amazing artist, uh, a new, a new um, act that you're just like, this person is insane. They're absolutely going to sell out Bowery. They're absolutely going to sell out MSG one day and be able to participate in the upside as they grow in popularity because you're creating content around that song. You're creating content around um, each of the, uh, of the stops along their tour. I think that similarly... 
as a product or a protocol uh, or a dApp grows and grows, that instead of a give-get affiliate model where you know you give 50 bucks and you get 50 bucks for sharing your your sponsorship code for a Casper mattress, um, you are hyper incentivized if you have a thousand friends with benefits tokens to uh, share it with your friends, and if let's say FWB quadruples in price, um, and it gives you direct access to a concert, um, to an exclusive room. Um, uh, to specialized digital goods that you can actually dress up your crypto punk. Um, those are all things that Web2 systems are not um, really set up to do. Uh, I'm particularly interested in doing this in the gaming space. What does it mean to blend fungible and non-fungible assets? Crypto kitties with hats, cats with hats. Like if you made hats uh, as an example, as a fungible asset that could be worn by any cat, um, and you could buy and sell them and trade them. But what if these hats could also be worn by CryptoPunks? What if they could also be worn by, you know, Hashmas or uh, apes? Shout out to my Board Ape Club members, right? Like, that, that's something that I don't think cross, that sort of cross-pollination has been done to the extent that it could be done uh, because so much of the control and value accrual within the gaming space is within the engines like Epic and Unity, um, or the publishers like a Bethesda um, or Blizzard. And because they control the keys, they face a little bit of the innovator's dilemma. They're not going to kill their cash cow to do something novel just for the sake of it. So for the near term, you're going to see companies like Sky Mavis take over and eat their lunch and say, hey, not only are we growing our market cap, but the users of our product are growing rich with us. So it's not just the first hundred investors and builders. It's all of us. Like we're all, we're all gonna make it. Yeah, we are all gonna make it, as they say on Twitter. <laughs> okay, so another question I have for you, as we think about moving from Web two to Web three, is ads. I know you started your career in the ad tech space, and obviously, you know, I think we're all we can all agree that ads have you know taken a, a turn for the worst. And it, I'm not saying that everything about ads is bad today. There are definitely good aspects of ads too. And I don't think we'll ever live in a world without ads, nor should we. But I'm curious to hear your thoughts on how we're going to see ads change and the ad model change as we move into Web3. Oh, I love this question because it's so hard to answer. Um, advertising in general, I, I don't think enough it just receives so much hate <laughs> people are so even more vitriol than you might have faced with web one with pop-up ads i mean if you thought web two was bad how about a totally irrelevant full screen interstitial that like took up your entire aol like that's the world we were living in before and blanket for as an advertiser is a terrible experience too you didn't have like options between cost per click or cost per thousand impressions. You didn't have behavioral targeting. You didn't have relevancy. So not only did you have annoying ads, but you had irrelevant ads. And at least, at least now with Google and Facebook, the two most powerful advertising products in the face of human history that actually can change governments, that actually can shape policy, that actually could spread different disinformation, this is not a toy. This is this is a weapon that can be that can be used for good. And I actually think a lot of Web three founders don't use search engine marketing or social ads enough. Um, 
oftentimes they're only sponsoring uh, podcasts and like crypto only audiences, which again is like this big. I think how it changes over time is that the most sophisticated brands and advertisers are not just going to be talking at people, but they're going to talk with people. And so you may see the best and most progressive brands buy real estate in Sandbox or Decentraland. And then they might actually partner with a real estate company that actually builds out a space that actually, you know, hundreds or thousands of their fans can actually come to a simulcast audience or concert for Taylor Swift and Kanye. And then they're going to issue not just NFTs that are kitschy tokens to say like, I was there, my ticket turned into an NFT, yay. But now you've got a crazy ass mask and a red leather jacket that looks just like Kanye and you can wear it in every single Somnium, Decentraland, Sandbox, and you can dip in and out of whatever the hell you want to dip out because you, you were there. And if you see someone with a crazy ass mask and like a red leather leather jacket, yeah, that's 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 some awesome digital clout. And I think the best entertainers and the best brands will do that, right? Brands will get more sophisticated and think about can I issue uh, NFTs with true utility or a pay to earn model where there's symbiosis and there's a direct relationship, right? Consumer product goods oftentimes don't have a direct relationship with their fans and their customers. They're selling through Walmart. They're selling through a drugstore. They're selling through Amazon. So Bezos and Wally are oftentimes sitting between you and that fan or that customer. But brands, the best ones, the most sophisticated ones are going to be able to say, we're going to issue a token. We're going to issue virtual goods. We're going to actually partner with our lead sponsors, you know, Nike, might um, have like both a, an online and offline presence that brokers a deal between not only the shoe but maybe um, the best uh, NBA you know venues to actually ensure that the uh, the fans themselves have a uh, um, have a touch point uh, across multiple um, parts of, of their everyday life. Like simply put, like like people might call that just advertorial or sponsorships which that's super old school madman stuff. That's like 80s, 70s. But digital goods is just that, but in digital form. And I think people that see brands doing that at a high level um, and do it at a degree where people can actually earn a living off of it, like Sky Mavis, like that's what the model needs to change, especially when you come to new content creator platforms that are creator first. Not audience first and not advertiser first, but creator first, which I then see um, companies like Substack and OnlyFans that are Web2 native. They are absolutely Web2, but they put the creator first. You know, like in the past, you know, folks like Tumblr, Facebook, they're oftentimes putting advertiser first. And then you have creator, curator and like user kind of on equal footing. But when you change that triangle to be like, okay, now we're going to put creators and or users on the same footing, that leads you to very, very different product decisions, very, very different experiences when someone uh, enters into a space. Um, so, yeah, that's how I, I think advertising changes. Yeah, I think it'll be a lot more genuine and a lot more natural too. Because like if I'm if I'm a Taylor Swift fan and I'm going to the concert and I'm paying all this money and I buy the skin that I wear all over the metaverse, then Cardigan. the people, yeah, the the people that are exposed to me that are you know going to be like I'm going to be running into 
on Decentraland or Somnium or whatever are probably people that follow me or they're going to see that. They're going to think it's super cool. And I think it'll be a much more natural reach. Another thing about ads that I'm curious about is like right now. So right now with social media, as we know it today, the users are sort of the products. So these companies are collecting data about how we behave on social media, who we follow, what we like, all of these things. I bought all that data, by the way. I purchased that data. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That was your job. That's your job. Or that was your job. In the future, like, where do you see this data coming from? Like, are if you're working at, you know, Razorfish or whatever, you're purchasing data, are you still purchasing data from these big companies, like the platforms? Or are you going to individual influencers and purchasing data from the individual creators who have generated all of the data that you want? And I think deserve to be paid for the data that they've worked hard to generate. I think it will be a blend of all those things. I, I don't think most people will want to know that they're getting 10 cents or 50 cents per uh, thousand impressions. Uh, I think wallets will be the interface that people can toggle on or toggle off what they share. You already see this in examples in, do you know what the most popular dApp is right now that that's kind of allowing for you to do this? It's uh, OpenSea. I would say it's probably Brave. Brave browser. I think Brave has 30 or 35 million monthly active users. And then second to them is MetaMask. So the wallet in Opera and in Brave is kind of acting as this like dashboard and command center to give you the option like, do you want to be paid in bat? And in the same way, I think. Once we get to larger network effects around brands that want, um, the only way that they'll switch, I think, is if the data is leading to, to true conversions and um, higher loyalty. Um, I think people will be able to, to create profiles that um, will be more monetizable, right? Um, so high consideration, low frequency purchases might be the beginning. So examples of that might be insurance or buying a car. You buy a car, how often? three, five, 10 years. Insurance, how often do you buy it? Is it home insurance? Is it life insurance? Usually those things happen upon um, a big life event or a death. So you have a kid, someone dies. Those are usually the things that are emotional triggers that allow for you to say, hey, I'm starting to shop for these things. I think for crypto people, when by default, the user is the one in control of this data and information, if you opt in for something that you're actively shopping for and you say, I want the best life insurance because now I feel responsible to ensure that upon my passing that my kids are taken care of. Like that's like a responsible adult thing, right? And I hope some of the folks that are listening to this like <laughs> go out and buy some boring ass life insurance and share your, your data because, you know, it's a good thing to do, right? But I think from a Web3 perspective, um, the tools will get more sophisticated and in sharing some of those things that will just be about everyday life. And, and we will have to um, rely on the tools that enrich our lives. So if, if the tooling isn't just about making a few extra bucks, but it really does like start to automate and enrich our lives and make our lives easier because we shared that data, we were intentional about that data, we were okay with that data being used. And then when it's used for the way that I wanted it to be used, by default, I want it back. That's something that couldn't be done before, right? Like the data that you might have shared on a YouTube video 
or on every time you're on Facebook, all the passive data, I think it's upwards of like five or 600 unique data points that people track on Facebook uh, across the different platforms, which is people are like 500. What are 500 things you could even track? Like, well, I know <laughs> that's exactly what I was just thinking. Yeah. Um, I, I'm excited for the, the world whereby which uh, Web3 products are the ones that will allow for you to take that data back once it's used for however you want it to be used, even if you wanted it to be used for monetization. Um, and then also to have greater degrees of civil liberties around privacy for you know who you are at work versus who you are at home. Maybe you're in from multiple different geographies. You have the right to be forgotten. You know, like legislation like that that's being issued in Europe and, you know, a lot of uh, a lot of like uh, progressive companies, I think, are, are coming to that realization that if you have control of that and we as a society and as tech builders and product creators start to educate people on how to use their data, to wield their data, to store their data, it's going to take a lot of time. But at the end of it all, I do think that we'll end up in a better place that um, hopefully isn't about purely around active management of all this data, but passively we can use toggles like a betterment or wealth front. You know, if it's just the financial aspect of your life, you answer 10 questions, it periodically does it on a monthly basis, you know your risk profile, and it automatically invests as a robo-investor. And in the same way, maybe you have a similar type of setup where it's making decisions for you. And that's the power of smart contracts, right? It's condensing and automating all these things that do I want to make every single decision about every piece of data that I create? Probably not. But I do think that maybe generally, will I want to give advertising dollars to someone that I'm ideologically aligned with? Yeah. So instead of canceling a brand and saying, oh, I'll never use New Balances ever again because they said one thing wrong. How about smart contracts tell me exactly what their balance sheet makeup is, who their partners are, and whether or not, you know, uh, ESG is a is a key element to how I spend my money or invest my money, and then a smart contract automatically executes that. That sort of accountability is is coming closer and closer, um, but I, I do think that it'll take time to figure out what is it, uh, what is the customized approach and what's the more passive approach, and um, I think there's going to be a little bit of room for both depending upon your life situation. Yeah, it's fascinating. And then one last aspect of, you know, traditional Web 2, something that everybody in Web 2 can relate to that I think will shift a lot in Web 3 is um, sort of the the other side of marketing that's more focused on brand and content and things like that. And I think what one thing that I've seen really change in this crypto space is that there's a much heavier focus on community. What you said, you know, VaynerMedia was actually like one of the first companies to really put an emphasis on community managers as like a key role in the organization. And I think every crypto company has a community manager position, and that position is very integral to the success of the company. So I'm I'm curious to hear, like, first of all, like, why do you think uh, this is, and is do you think that this is going to last into Web three? Like, do you think this is a Web three thing, or do you think it's just a thing right now? because the community is still so small and there's so much like education needed still? I think there will always be a role for a human element for, for community management, especially when it comes to managing very diverse communities. 
whether it's a DeFi protocol or a social token, um, I do think that uh, the people that are intentional, um, especially when you look at different creator platforms, ecosystems where you have a high de- high composition of developers that contribute to its marketplace, they act as shepherds. And I think they're so, so invaluable. I mean, I, 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 can't, I can't tell you how many times where I feel like someone that raises their hand to take ownership and responsibility ends up helping to solve the problem faster than a bunch of people talking at each other. I think because human beings, um, the social coordination costs will be there because human beings are complex, um, which is why I actually, I don't know if it's a hot take, but a lot of these DAOs um, that end up trying to do too much um, might might throw everything in the kitchen sink in there. And that, that might be the thing that um, is problematic. And it might be the ones that, are a little bit single serving and focused on just one or two key elements whereby which there's an active shepherd or someone that, that um, helps to guide and uh, say, and act as a therapist in, in a lot of instances around, this is what I'm hearing. This is what I'm hearing that you're saying. I've read all 45 comments in this thread of this discord uh, or discourse. And I am hearing that, no, you do not want to diversify this treasury. Like, it does take a little bit of synthesizing, and Web3, I think, also should be much more inclusive of AI in general. So everything from natural language processing, machine learning, and robotics, like, those things kind of naturally lend themselves to smart contracts. I mean, I don't want to scare folks, but, like, they kind of, like, are of the same DNA. So when you're talking about decentralized storage, decentralized compute, and all the amazing automation in AI land, and then you think about the power of a decentralized, unstoppable like network uh, in crypto, like they should be married. And we're going to see things that you're just like, oh my gosh. Uh, I think Vitalik has talked multiple times about autonomous agents and how Seanbot, you know, 103 can go out there and essentially say, hey, based upon this risk profile, he, Seanbot 103 is going to look for these types of farms. Um, and participate and it'll be 5% of his portfolio. And if there's daily gains, it'll report back to me in a text message and I'll be like, great, thank you. Um, but AI, you know, parts of AI and machine learning, um, and natural language processing is what is going to be used as a chain link oracle informing those decisions, right? A random number generator informing those decisions. Like those elements are going to be used, uh, to, to free me up to enjoy life in a way and organize my life in a way that works for me. Um, so yeah, I, I do think that those are, those are some of the other elements that are necessary to kind of see, uh, the, the, I don't want to say right evolution, but uh, a possible evolution or a possible outcome of, uh, of this work. Fascinating. Sean, I have so many more questions for you, but in the interest of time, I'm trying to be respectful of your time. I'm going to go ahead and wrap it up here. We like to end every podcast episode with a segment that I call Explain Your Tweet, which is where I go through your Twitter and dig up some interesting or cryptic tweets. Your Twitter is is a lot of retweets, and I, I think it comes out very clear that you do 10 times more listening than you do talking, uh, <laughs> which is great. But I so I've just got one quick tweet for you. This one is from... July 11th, 2021, you said, parenting young children is basically redirecting different levels of chaos. And I have never parented young children, but I read this and I was like, isn't this also like running a startup? 
Yeah, I think the <laughs> the allegory of a startup being a child and your baby is so appropriate. Um, every week, just like human beings, they're changing. And as founders, you know, you, you never know what's going to happen, what developmental milestone or setback is going to happen, and you just have to adjust on the fly. And so um, I think some the best founders in the world are, are, are flexible and able to anticipate and have foresight. Uh, foresight is my number one value in a founder. So if I can find someone that can be like a Professor X or Jean Grey and think about what is about a premonition of what's about to happen, that anticipatory muscle is incredible, especially when you're talking about an ecosystem like Web3 where everybody that has committed their their entire life to this and worked decided to work in this space has already made a concession to be working on unstable ground. And so in that unstable ground, you know, like because we have to think in a very probabilistic sense, like what's the over under on ETH2 launching on the date that it said it would launch or 1559 or, you know, uh, a bridge, you know, between your favorite, you know, other L1 or whatever. Those are all things just like being a parent. You're like, well, how will my daughter uh, adjust to this new school? Because it's a Mandarin emergent school and now her entire day is in Chinese. <laughs> Surprise, honey, we love you. It's all in Mandarin. <laughs> um, your users, my daughter, may react differently um, versus my son, who you know may may just be in user testing with like dinosaurs um, and dinosaur figurines. So, yeah, I, every day I kind of think about how your inputs and your outputs hopefully lead you to a better uh, end result, and hopefully both your startup and uh, your children end up flourishing in the environment that you help to create around them. I love that analogy. Do you feel more well-equipped to be a parent since you've worked at startups? Oh, 100%. <laughs> if, if I was reliant on like a consistent structured day, uh, I think I would go crazy or, or be very discouraged as a parent um, and vice versa. I actually think of being a parent has made me a better operator and investor because it's made me deeply, deeply empathetic for, to various stakeholders in a process and in, in growing as a human being. Um, and also kind of seeing that um, just because I see things a certain way doesn't always mean that my startup or my other stakeholders are going to see it that way. So it's, it's always, always important to keep an open mind and um, really continue to have that, that open dialogue and, and um, yeah, ensure that, uh, that the people involved uh, kind of have a shared understanding and always kind of recheck that because just because it was the way that it was a week ago does not always mean that it's going to be that same way um, two weeks, three weeks, a month later. So um, there's definitely a, a symbiotic relationship between those two. I mean, there, I, I definitely think about some certain DeFi or gaming crypto CEOs that have two, three, four kids and it's just hilarious hearing their stories and hearing about like, wow, like <laughs> it's it's awesome to hear how they're uh, how training how how to potty train a kid informs uh, how to build a product. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> Interesting. No details there, but uh, anyways, that's that's, yeah. <laughs> that's a story for another time. 
I love it. I love it. All right. Well, last thing, Sean, before you go, tell people where they can find you if they want to you know, connect with you personally, have follow-up questions for you, and then also tell people where they can go to learn more about Consensus Master if they're building a cool product and they want your, your support on that. Yes, absolutely. Um, you can find me on Twitter at Shachang, S-H-A-C-H-E-N-G, uh, or you can just email direct, directly uh, at Sean.Chang at mesh.xyz. Yes, we are a XYZ top-level domain owner, just like many other crypto companies. And if you want to learn more about Mesh and, and all the things that we're doing, um, you can check out Mesh.XYZ. Uh, we're publishing more on our Medium um, and our social channels. Um, yeah, we're excited to, to meet founders, especially strong Web2 founders that want to enter into this space, um, but just don't know where to start. And so we're, we're excited to really help usher... Uh, and shepherd those folks in um, and tr- hopefully give them a playbook and, and kind of a shorthand to say um, these are some of the things that they should consider in while they're thinking about building their product or service in this space. So very much looking forward to all of, all of you that, that might reach out um, after having me on this great podcast. So thank you so much for having me, Diana. Amazing. Of course, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the podcast. Thank you listeners for tuning in and we'll be back again soon with another episode of the Unstoppable Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Unstoppable Podcast. If something we said today resonated with you, please rate, subscribe and download our podcast and share this episode on social media with your network. And remember, the fun doesn't have to stop when the episode ends. You can continue this conversation with us on Twitter by tweeting your questions, thoughts, and ideas to Unstoppable Web. We look forward to chatting with you and thanks again for listening.